0: This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome
2: to the Bubble Hour. Welcome, 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 welcome welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it, I did that, not proud but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power, weakness head on.
0: Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in Season 2. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at TheBubbleHour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show.
1: Hello, this
3: is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. And I am Ellie, and I'm here with my co-host, Lisa and Amanda. And we are going to have a show tonight that talks about the medical and physical symptoms of alcoholism and the progression of the disease. It's a question that we get a lot, and it's something that a lot of people, I think, wonder about, in particular when they're thinking of their own drinking. So we're going to share a little bit of our own stories, and then we also have two guests here this evening that will be talking about their own drinking story and some of the information that they can share about the physical symptoms and the medical complications that they had as a result of their drinking as well. I would like to give our usual caveat every time we do a show that is talking about something specific, in particular with this topic, that we are not medical professionals. We are offering only our own experiences and some of the things that we have learned over the course of our own drinking histories and various, at least in my case and Amanda's case, at rehab and some of the own research that we have done. But if you think that you may have a problem with drinking or you're contemplating stopping drinking, we absolutely encourage you to seek the help of a medical professional or an addiction counselor or a therapist. Alcohol withdrawal is one of the only withdrawals of substance abuse that can kill you. It can be fatal, and we will talk a little bit about some of the signs and symptoms of withdrawal. But please remember that this is not even close to a comprehensive list of all the things that can be, pro- that can be problematic with drinking. Um, there are many symptoms that can be indicative of a problem or a dependency, but we can't possibly talk about them all. So please, again, as we are not medical professionals, don't take this as a hard and fast list of any kind. This is a very complex topic. And the other thing we want to encourage people to do is listen with a very open mind. And as we're talking about some of the progression of the diseases and some of the stages that, that alcoholism, how it progresses, as well as the physical symptomology, we really want to emphasize the fact that pretty much any one of the things that we talk about can be indicative of a problem. So as we're ticking through the list of symptoms or signs, you don't have to have them all. You only need to have one or two. You don't have to be, have progressed all the way to the end of um, the road, so to speak, to, to be developing a problem with alcohol. So please bear that in mind as we're talking about these things. It's so easy. We've all done it to listen to various signs and symptoms, especially when we're talking about the later stages of the disease and think, well, I don't have that yet, so I can't possibly have a problem. And in fact even some of the signs that we've discovered, and we'll talk about our own experiences when we were really early on in this disease, can be extremely hard to miss. So please uh, bear that in mind as you're listening. And I think what I'd like to do is just sort of start out by talking about the stages of the disease of alcoholism itself. For the purposes of this conversation, I have broken it into three stages. Again, this is nothing medically, I'm not a medical professional, so this is just really for simplicity's sake and for ease of conversation. But I think of alcoholism as stage one is typically referred to as an early or adaptive stage. And here, your drinking may take on more than just the social elements, even though it is still mostly masked at the social activity. And um, when I say, what, I, what do I mean by that? When I say that, it means that you drink to help your mood or to help you feel better because you might be feeling stressed or think the problems you're having are easier to deal with when you're drinking. At this stage, your tolerance to alcohol begins to increase because no one, but nobody really notices anything really different about you or your behavior, but you may notice that it takes more alcohol to get that kind of feeling of release or numbness or improved mood that, you know, it may have taken one or two before and now it may be taking three or four drinks to achieve that sort of what I used to think of as kind of the ideal, ideal buzz, which lasted all of maybe 15 minutes before everything started to either fall apart or I just needed more. The second stage of alcoholism, which I will refer to for this conversation as the middle stage, is when your desire to drink becomes more intense and you start to drink more than you used to, often maybe often starting earlier in the day. That doesn't necessarily mean the morning, just earlier in the day. Maybe if you've been a 5 o'clock drinker or a 6 o'clock drinker or an after work drinker, you might find yourself drinking at lunch or earlier in the afternoon. At this stage, the loss of control begins to take effect, and your body begins to struggle to process the alcohol as it used to be able to. And that means you get symptoms like hangovers, blackouts, or what I refer to as grayouts, where you can remember remember bits and pieces of things that happen, but not everything. A blackout is when you have total memory loss. You may have tremors, which is like mild shaking in your hands or feet, your extremities, and you might have some stomach problems like indigestion or heartburn, stomach aches, things like that. Sometimes people begin to notice that they're, um, might, they might start thinking that they might have a problem with alcohol, but you generally dismiss this because you're most likely in denial. Most people are at this stage. Or you might make empty promises to yourself or to other people about stopping or cutting down on your drinking, and inevitably these are unsuccessful. They, they might be successful for a short period of time or even a long period of time, but eventually your drinking always returns to its prior level. And you generally don't see a problem with being with yourself and you can justify your drinking with the things that are either wrong or stressful or outside influences in your, in your own life, typically known as, known as, if you had my life, you'd drink too. And I certainly felt that way myself more than once. Alcoholism stage three is also known as end or late stage alcoholism. It's the final stage, again, for the purposes of this conversation. And it's characterized by a chronic loss of control. You become obsessed with drinking to the exclusion of almost everything else, and you start to avoid family and friends, and even stop doing things you previously enjoyed. The biggest sign of being in the stage is that your life begins to fall apart. Things start to get out of control. You now need to drink to even be able to function, and holding down a job becomes almost impossible. You may find yourself in serious financial problems as a result of this, and your mental and physical health start to rapidly deteriorate. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it can happen very quickly. You, may, you will have, not may, but you will likely develop very serious liver damage, probably have malnutrition as a major symptom because your body is no longer receiving the vitamins and nutrients that it needs. Many people at this stage have a loss of appetite and eat very little or not at all. Chronic fatigue and emotional instability are offset symptoms, and you get a serious case of the shakes when you stop drinking. This is a major sign of withdrawal. It's also a sign of nerve disorder and can be combined with hallucinations or the delirium tremens, the DTs, making this a stage where death becomes a very real possibility. And it becomes a real possibility at this stage because going into withdrawal puts you at serious risk for a spike in blood pressure, for an alcoholic seizure, and other various stomach and esophageal ailments that can be fatal. And we, again, we'll talk more about those later. But I, I just, I'm I going to keep stressing this over the course of this entire show, that the stage one, that, the stage two that we talked about, are signs of alcoholism. They may not have progressed all the way to the end stage, but there are signs that a problem is developing. And from our collective experiences in recovery and in drinking, also, they're pretty uniform across the board. It doesn't really matter what your life circumstances are, your ethnic background, your economic status. None of those really come into play. You could be a successful business person or a mom or, you know, or a homeless person under a bridge. It doesn't really matter that these, these stages are, are pretty consistent across the board. I did want to talk about sort of if this is more like a tick list of the signs and symptoms of alcoholism from a physical standpoint and an emotional standpoint. Some of these are repetitive, but um, you could take note of these if you'd like. This is actually comes from the source of this information is the Mayo Clinic. So, alcoholism signs and symptoms include these below. Again, just one of these is enough to indicate a potential problem. You may be unable to limit the amount of alcohol you drink. You can make excuses to drink. You feel a strong need or compulsion to drink. You develop a tolerance to alcohol so that you need more to feel its effects. You drink alone or hide your drinking. You don't remember conversations or commitments, sometimes referred to as a blackout or a grayout. You make a ritual of having drinks at certain times and become annoyed or irritable when this ritual is disturbed or questioned. You keep alcohol in unlikely places at home, at work, or in your car. You gulp drinks. Usually, when nobody's looking, but not necessarily, you order doubles or become drunk. You or become drunk intentionally to feel good or drink to feel normal. You lose interest in activities and hobbies that used to bring you pleasure. You continue to drink even when health, work, or family are being harmed. You may have a very pronounced mood disorder of mood swings when you're drinking. Violence is typical, or or extreme anger. You neglect your personal appearance or your hygiene. You neglect to eat or you eat poorly. You shake in the morning after periods when you, when you have not had a drink. Or you, Sorry, you shake in the morning or after periods when you have not had a drink. And then you have alcohol withdrawal symptoms when you haven't had a, haven't had a drink in a while. Again, this is by no means a comprehensive list, and this, this, these are symptoms at different stages of the disease, but any one of them can happen basically at any time. Um, When we're talking about alcohol withdrawal symptoms, I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about those. They usually occur within five to 10 hours after the last drink, but they can occur days later. It's important to note that if you're thinking about stopping drinking that um, you may feel good initially, but these symptoms can hit you later on. And some of them are actually asymptomatic. You could be having blood pressure spikes that do not come with symptoms. Symptoms can get worse, usually do, in 48 to 72 hours after the last drink, and they may persist for weeks. But they're, very, they're most dangerous in the first 48 to 72 hours after the last drink. So common symptoms of withdrawal include anxi- anxiety or nervousness, depression, not thinking clearly, fatigue, irritability, jumpiness or shakiness, mood swings and nightmares, this actually comes from uh, the source of this information, specifically as a New York Times article from their health section. Other symptoms may include clammy skin, enlarged or dilated pupils, headaches, insomnia, loss of appetite, nausea, and vomiting, a uh, pale complexion, a rapid heart rate, sweating, or tremors of the hands or other body parts. And then a severe form of alcohol withdrawal, which is called the delirium tremens, also known as the DTs, that can cause extreme agitation, severe confusion, seeing, hearing, or feeling things that aren't there, otherwise known as hallucination, fever, or seizures. And uh, the most pronounced side effect that isn't really even mentioned here would be a dangerous spike in your blood pressure, and you may have rapid heartbeat, flush, flush skin, or extreme stress or anxiety as a result of this but not necessarily and there's there's a million tests that you can take about I, I don't know how many times I googled am I an alcoholic <laughs> so, yeah. but there's one test that I have always really liked myself personally it was given to me as I was admitted into rehab and I like it because it's very concise it's four questions it's called the cage test c-a-g-e and it says, how could you tell whether you or someone close to you may have a drinking problem? Answering, an, answering the following four questions can help you find out. To help you remember these questions, note that the first letter of a keyword in each of the four questions spells CAGE. That's a little dubious. They're reaching for a, <laughs> for a word here. But here are the four questions. First one is, have you ever felt you should cut down on your drinking? The second question is, have people annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? The third one is, have you ever felt bad or guilty about your drinking? And the fourth one is, have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to steady your nerves or get rid of a hang-opener, <laughs> hang I'm thinking eye-opener, to get rid of a hangover? Those are the four questions. One yes response suggests an alcohol problem. If you responded yes to more than one question, it is highly likely that a problem exists, which means it's highly likely that you are an alcoholic or definitely progressing into alcoholism. And, excuse me, one of the things that I like about this test is that it really it touches on, on with the question, have you ever felt bad or guilty about yeah. your drinking? That's something internal. A lot of people hit rock bottom, so to speak, without having any outside effects from their drinking. There's lots of high-functioning alcoholics out there who are very accomplished at keeping their drinking secret. And you don't have to have the loss of jobs or financial or economic or familial wreckage from drinking you can be absolutely at rock bottom and have everything else in your life intact and it's how you feel on the inside about yourself and your self-esteem and your loss of interest and sort of increasing mental physical chaos in your life so again if you want to look it up yourself you can look up the cage test for alcoholism and look at those four questions and then think pretty seriously
0: Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the bubble hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building.
2: I
3: wanted just to tell very, very briefly a little bit of my own story as it relates to this topic tonight. And I think the things, a couple of things that I wanted to emphasize is that I had all of the sort of emotional-dependent symptoms that they talked about, emotionally-dependent, drinking at the same time every day, my end-of-the-day wine and getting irritable if I couldn't have it. I used alcohol to alter or hide my moods or hide from negative emotions like boredom or anger, resentment or sadness. And these happened for a while before I started to slip into more physical dependency. And I was completely unaware of the fact that some of these more emotional or mental symptoms were a sign that I was developing a problem with alcohol. And mostly because I surrounded myself with people who drank like I did, and I didn't ask anybody how drinking made them feel on the inside. And then, as it progressed, it started with an increased, for me. It started with an increased compulsion to drink, an obsession to drink, the inability to stop at a couple of drinks. I didn't drink every day at this stage, but I did have a hard time stopping when I did drink. And then that increased to daily drinking and increased tolerance, grayouts and blackouts famous for gulping drinks. When my husband walked out of the room, I'd finish mine and refill it, maybe finish his, and then make sure the levels were exactly where they were, and the wine wasn't sloshing around in the glass anymore, so he didn't know. I started to drink alone more. I usually, I did that usually as I coached dinner, so I could tell myself it was normal, but I could easily put down three or four drinks just cooking dinner alone before my husband came home, and we started in our, on our, I, I started in my, my visible drinking, And then, and the physical symptoms at this stage for me included bloating and weight gain. I started to notice a few tiny broken blood vessels on my cheeks. I had increased anxiety. I had sleeplessness. I didn't have anything like shakes or or tremors or anything of the other symptoms that we talked about. But I started to think at this stage that maybe I liked alcohol a little bit too much. And I would say to myself, but I can still stop if I want to. I can still cut back if I want to. And I just Told myself I didn't want to. So I kept drinking like I always had, and it gradually increased. And I think the the point that I really want to emphasize is that when I slipped into physical dependency, which does not happen to everybody who is an alcoholic. As a matter of fact, it probably happens to a a much smaller percentage than people realize. It happened very, very quickly for me. I had had those symptoms that I just described over a number of years, maybe three to five years. And I had worried for a long time that I wouldn't be able to stop because I didn't want to, but suddenly I had to drink. And when I say had to drink, I mean I would get withdrawal symptoms. If I didn't drink, things like shaking and sweating and racing panic attacks and anxiety, and those progressed at an alarmingly fast rate. Over the course of two or three weeks, I went from really wanting to drink to having to drink, and I could not go for more than an hour. And it was the summer of 2007 from mid-June to early August. That's when I slipped into physical dependency and my life completely fell apart over the span of about five weeks. It did start with morning tremors in my hands and muscle twitches and waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. sweating and panicky and full of anxiety. And at the end of those three weeks, I was totally unable to stop drinking, passing out regularly. My right side started to swell because my liver was swelling. I think your liver's on your right side. Well, way, anyway, my liver was swelling. My blood pressure went up. I ended up in an ambulance with dangerously high blood pressure, delirium, and vomiting blood. And that was over the course of three weeks. And, yeah, three weeks before all that was happening, I didn't have any symptoms at all. So the last point that I want to make is that I was just... What I really remember is that I was not really scared during all of this has created sounds, even at the end when the symptoms were at their worst, because as soon as I started to get scared, I would drink. That's what I did. That's how I coped. I drank to forget everything. And I kept telling myself I could stop any time or moderate any time, even as the evidence was alarmingly obvious in the other direction. And I told myself this lie until I couldn't stop. I told myself this lie in the hospital, in the ambulance. I can remember thinking, oh, they just give me a drink, everything will be fine. Because your mental state really deteriorates as you progress down this path of physical dependency. And drinking without my own permission was one of the worst things that I have ever experienced in my whole life. And physical dependency on alcohol, as our guests will talk about, and you know, Lisa and Amanda can add some other points to this, is hell on earth. It's really just about the worst thing I've ever experienced and would... Hopefully I will never have to go back there again. So... With that, I think what I will do is turn it over to Lisa, who is going to share her some insights that she has, and then we'll take it from there.
4: Okay. Thanks, Ellie. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to keep this real simple. Basically, I was—I remember being very afraid because I could no longer recall what I did the night before. As I, as I woke up, I would think, oh, what, what did I say? What did I do? And that was frightening in us. And then... When I started doing some research on long-term damaging effects of alcohol and memory loss, I became really afraid. Anyone, myself included, and probably most of the people listening, anyone who does abuse alcohol long enough or heavily enough will eventually have problems with memory. You know, I consider myself, well, I've I think that I was I was a functioning alcoholic. I was able to function day to day. I never reached the point where you did, Ellie, with physical addiction. So I was able to maintain this facade of having it all together. But eventually what started to happen to me was, although my memory problems were less severe than the problems of, you know, Skid Row alcoholic, they did come. And I think anyone who... um Uses alcohol long enough, eventually, it's going to show up that de- deteriorating uh, memory, particularly for me, at least, it was short-term. Short-term memory loss was a huge sign that I was really heading in a very quick downward spiral. The first-term memory problems I remember showed up before I began to even have blackout. So, you know, thinking that that was years ago, But the alcoholic blackouts, for me, were an indication that brain damage was happening, and that really made me afraid, which was a good thing in a way because, you know, as you know, Ellie and Amanda, the research that I did was kind of motivation to keep me from drinking. At least as I first got sober, I poured over every Every research, every blog, every recovery book I could find, anything that had scientific evidence as to why I needed to quit—I was just desperate to find a reason and something to turn to to make myself remember that these were huge gaps in my memory. <laughs> like I couldn't—I sometimes couldn't remember how I would get home the night before. Sometimes didn't remember where I was the night before or who I was with, and I really, I wasn't always aware of what I was doing. I was aware at the time of what I was doing, but I couldn't remember the next day what it was, and I, I sort of have thought of this a lot, and I think that part of me wanting to self-medicate was with alcohol, it was sort of like voluntary disassociation. It was kind of like I tried to, you know, split myself off from the reality of my life, and that was kind of why I drank. And so when I entered that altered state, I would feel better. The problem for me was that I had eventually had become addicted to alcohol over time. And now, and you know, after that, I just had to have alcohol to feel okay. So this memory loss led to me often feeling like people were hiding things from me because they would tell me things that I had said, and I would just totally... I'd be defenses and I would argue that they didn't know what they were talking about and because I wouldn't remember anything that they were saying that I had said and because I was out of my own reality. And um typically I was mentally somewhere else. I mean, I would be in the same room with someone telling them something and then the next day when they would bring it up, I would be like, What? You know, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I didn't say that. And so them This just, you know, it really started happening more and more daily. And finally, I think that was one of the big things. I really was afraid. I mean, I was desperately afraid of something happening to my brain. And I knew that it was coming if I didn't quickly get a hold of the problem. And so that's kind of my, you know, my brief brief share on what I feel like alcohol did to my memory and to my brain. And fortunately, I was able to get a hold of it before it got worse. I have no idea. I think it could have gotten much worse. I hear about being quite like wet brain and um, kind of the third stage, Ellie, that you spoke about earlier. But I really feel like it's, if, you, if anyone experiences a symptom of not being able to remember what you did the night before or if someone tells you something and you have no idea what they're talking about because you were too intoxicated to remember that's a sign. If that's happening at all, even just periodically, it's really worth taking note of and forcing yourself to dig deep and, you know, really try to pinpoint where it's coming from. And Most likely you'll find it's coming from your drinking way more than you should, at least from my perspective, my own personal experience.
0: Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by The Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by The Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. others find the message of recovery we champion on the bubble hour plus get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on patreon patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast tiny bubbles become a bubble hour patron today at patreon.com slash the bubble hour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope
4: It doesn't matter if you're able to get up every day and go to your job and, you know, carry on this normal, very normal-looking life on the outside. If you if you are really and truly not remembering things that happen while you drink, I believe, I don't know how much more clear I can be, but I think that that's something that must be considered as a sign.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. Amanda, are you there?
1: Are you ready to Yeah, a I was bit? just going to jump in with just one small thing. I mean, I experienced a lot of those sim- symptoms as well, most of them. And the blacking out, that was a common occurrence for me. And like you said it was, you know, in college years, early early 20s and stuff like that. It was like the norm. That's what we did. Mm-hmm. But that's no longer funny when you're 40. But just that's not normal drinking, but I I didn't really think of it that way. I I guess when it came to Alcohol. I just didn't. I didn't accept that I was an adult, and I felt that I. I was uh, young at heart, and to me, I was proving to the world that I was a party girl at 40. But you know, mm-hmm. looking back now, we did I did a little research, looking as you guys did, and I mean, what brain is permanent brain brain damage, and it can happen, and blackouts being a sign. I mean, that's just frightening to me, and I'm I'm glad I, I stopped when I did. I'm very grateful mm-hmm. for that, and uh, just just. Without getting into too many things, one other thing that I thought I'd share that did happen to me is a panic attack. And I, it was a Wednesday, so I was on my way to work. And I think I had had maybe a glass of two or of wine the night before. It wasn't it definitely not a night where I was hungover or anything like that. And I was driving to work, and I was just getting off of the highway, and I was stuck in traffic. And all of a sudden, I started sweating. And I started, I couldn't breathe, and I was shaking uncontrollably like my whole body was trembling. And I managed to get off the exit, and I was terrified, and I pulled over into a gas station, and I stopped, and I tried to catch my breath. It was freezing cold out. I, I jumped out of my car. I took my coat off, and I couldn't breathe And I just couldn't breathe. And I went inside. I didn't have any money. I I got money. I got a, a water. I just tried to calm down. I thought I was dying. And I actually finally, after I got the water and I couldn't breathe, I called an ambulance on myself. And and they took me to the hospital, and you know nothing. They did a full test, and nothing was wrong with me. And they did the nurse asked me, "Do I drink a lot?" When she checked me in, and I of course denied it. Right. Um, and I said, "Well, no, I had a glass of wine or two last night." And she was like, "Okay, you know." And and I remember I relayed this story to my friend, and who was sober, and she didn't say anything at the time, but she sent me an email. I'm guessing after much contemplation about a week later and said I just want you to know I'm not pointing any fingers or anything at you but this can be a sign that you're of uh, you're drinking and even if you weren't drinking a lot the night before and I realized looking back on that now I was that was probably some sort of withdrawal and and it was a, a full on panic attack I hear people talk about that and they're like oh I just had one I'm like no I called an ambulance on myself it was terrifying I thought I was going to die. And I, was, I quickly dismissed that. I read my friend's email, and I did worry about it, but, you know, I wasn't ready yet. And they probably would have done more testing if I had been honest with the nurse, but I wasn't. Right. And I never was with any medical professional about my drinking until I was absolutely at my bottom. So I just thought I would share that. There's all different kinds of signs, some things that don't seem like, you know, the end of the world or where you're getting, well, I did get hospitalized just for a couple hours, but it's scary stuff.
3: It is. It is. And I, that, thank you, Amanda. And I I, also made me think of one other thing before we go to our first gift, Amy, and we'll probably circle back on this later on in the show, but I experienced over and over again that I would go to a doctor, what made me think of this is when you were at the hospital and the nurse. Of course she's asking about your drinking, because panic attacks are a sign of a drinking problem, and I was never, ever truthful with my doctors. It's just part of the denial and part of the disease, and, and we're not truthful because we don't want to stop. You know, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but what I have found pretty consistently, I think especially if you don't quote-unquote look the part, people really have that, it's, it's well back to the stigma of alcoholism, they have an idea in their head about what an alcoholic looks like, and if you don't fit that, they really don't press you on the truthfulness of your answers, and they don't necessarily do the right blood work. So I would lie on all of those questionnaires every time I had a physical, and I would lie to my doctor. And even at the end, when things were awful, and my blood pressure was really high, I would lie and they would believe me because I didn't look like an alcoholic in their mind. Um, so I just will, again, bring this point home later, but that if you've decided that you want to get help and you're going to go talk to your doctor, be honest, Tell them the truth. They've heard it all. And if you find yourself reluctant to be truthful about your drinking to a medical professional, that's also a sign that things may not be That in in your heart of heart, you know, that there might be a problem because that's another common behavior that we do. We don't, we're not truthful about it because we don't want anyone to say we have to stop.
4: Right. Ellie, I have to say, this is Lisa quickly. I know that I went to three different doctors before I finally got sober and even at my worst, at my lowest, I still was not truthful about, even with my therapist at the time, about how much I was actually drinking. And so I look back on those those times, and I think things could have been different for me if I had been truthful, you know, sooner. But just having said that, like you said, I just want to reiterate, it's just not, there's no point in going if you're not going to just go ahead and be completely honest because that's where you'll find help
3: absolutely thank you for pointing that out I I'll just again one last anecdote I also went to numerous therapists and psychologists and I wanted to be diagnosed with anything but alcoholism so I a mm-hmm. panic disorder was fine with me depression was fine with me even just call me crazy I don't care just don't call me an alcoholic and they would ask to go drinking I would lie and they would prescribe something else like anxiety or depression right. or was part of depression and all I mean all of those things were probably lurking in the background, but they weren't really the cause of, of the depression and anxieties I was, I was experiencing because when I did stop drinking, those things went away.
4: right, for me, those were just symptoms of my alcoholism, just you right. know instead of them being the cause, it was the symptom.
3: Exactly. And there are people do have legitimate dual diagnosis where they have depression or anxiety mm-hmm. and alcoholism, but you can't even diagnose the first two if you don't right, have your right. third one first. So that's an excellent point. Thank you. So at this point, I think we would like to go on to our first guest, which is, who is
5: Amy. And Amy, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Welcome to the Bubble oh. Hour. Thank you for being on our show. Hey, Amy. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And so, Amy, do you want to just introduce yourself briefly and then share your experience on the topic today? Sure. Thank you. Hi, Hi everyone. My name is Amy and I'm an alcoholic. Thanks for having me, ladies, on the show tonight. It's great to be on and to be a part of this. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background. I'm 47 years old and I am a single mom with an 11-year-old son. I recently celebrated my first year of sobriety a couple of months ago, and it was a struggle to get there, but I did make it, and I'm very happy and very proud of myself. I'm a professional woman, and I relocated from New York to Massachusetts, and when I relocated here, I started my career and I was very successful in my career. I bought a house. You know, I had my family in my house. I got a new car, and I was doing great. Everything was going great. I was, at that time, a very high-functioning um, alcoholic. I started drinking a lot probably in my 30s, which is when it started to get really bad. But I, I did function. I did, you know, excel in my career, and I did, I did good. And I did not see the progression when it when it was happening I had a lot of the stuff that everyone um has already shared on the show as far as the symptoms of the blacking out and the the drinking alone and you know all of those a lot of my symptoms you know as far as my um you know, went from drinking, you know, from the stage one to stage two, I, I went from drinking, you know, daily to started drinking earlier in the day and then started, you know, in my profession, I was in sales and a lot of people in sales like to drink and you're drinking on your companies. Dollar, and it's it's just very convenient, and and it's accepted, and a lot of the people that I worked with did drink, and they, they were all alcoholics, as far as I'm concerned, and it was just very easy for me to get away with it. It was never brought to my attention. I was never told I know that I was that I was drinking too much. We did a lot of traveling in my in my work, and did a lot of sales conventions, and a lot of drinking, and everybody drank, and everybody you know got drunk, and it was accepted, and it was it was okay. My dad was a high-functioning alcoholic as well, but nobody ever talked about AA. Nobody ever talked, said the word alcoholic. No, people used to say, you know, in my family, you know, this one drinks a lot. But it was kind of like a joke. It was funny. I was laughed off when I was in my career working. Everybody, we laughed. We had a good time. Everything was, was fun until it got to the point where, for me, it wasn't. Fun anymore, And it got to a point with me where, you know, I, I started to, if I didn't drink, I, I would go through the physical symptoms of getting with the nausea and, you know, the trem, the, the shaking and, you know, and just having to, um, the only thing that would make me feel better was to have another drink and I started drinking earlier in the day and then I would get leave work early so I could go home and work from home you know, in the afternoons I would leave, you know, instead of leaving at
0: 5.30 6 o'clock I started So we'll end it there for this episode, I... friends that's it for this condensed version of this conversation, which does actually go on for a whole nother hour it's available on patreon.com slash the bubble hour you get access to full episodes of our entire back catalog ad free so if you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head on over there. Thanks for listening to the Bubble Hour. We'll talk to you again. Take good
2: care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness. Head on. Who's looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say i not proud, but that was me And when I face I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free